Hello, welcome back, and an extra special welcome to Season 2 of the History of the Congo. A particular thank you to all of those who have waited patiently to jump the gap between the seasons. If you're a new joiner who has just started with this, then where have you been? Much of the Congo history on social media starts with Leopold, but there are thousands of years before that which should not be missed, so why not start with this on Season 1? Either way, let's jump right in. Season 2, Episode 1, Leopold's Congo. Before you start listening to this episode, can I reiterate my thoughts at the end of Season 1? This episode covers Leopold's Congo. There is substance behind its notoriety. It is truly horrific and barbaric. People were treated appallingly for no reason other than greed. This has been a difficult episode to research, but it's a crucial part of the story which we need to discuss. It's also a new low in humanity, but I am committed to reflecting the accounts of the time. If you want to skip to the next episode, please do. All you need to remember is that it is horrific, but ultimately, humanity didn't stand by. So, still here, while well, I respectfully consider you forewarned. Here we go. Last time we left the Congo, it was 1895, and after a brief retrospective trip back a few years to see the final Belgian captor of Katanga, we have reached the stage where the Congo, as we talk about it, exists as a whole within the current borders of today's Democratic Republic of the Congo. In 1895 this was known as the Congo Free State, and it was governed by one man and one man only, the Belgian monarch King Leopold II. We know that the territory was huge, and it housed many peoples. Some had lived within powerful international kingdoms, long since disenfranchised with power, such as the Kingdom of the Congo. Others had lived within vast confederate empires such as the Luba and the Lunda, and others had lived in even smaller tribes located from the southern borders with Angola to the northern borders with Sudan. They had many histories and were sometimes allies, sometimes enemies, but the outside world had arrived over a number of centuries and one by one the peoples had been variously trading, oppressed, conquered or a combination of all three with either the Swahili Arabs or the Europeans. But now, for the first time, they found themselves combined under the direct rule of one man. With this history clear in our minds, it is obvious that the relationships between these peoples would be key to the long-term future. But for the next 65 years, their main relationship would be with one entity. In 1895, known as the Congo Free State, ruled by King Leopold II, formal colonialism has begun. Leopold's ambitions will not have been too difficult to discern from the previous episodes. Although cloaked in philanthropy and developmental zeal, his thirst for control of a colony was starting to shine through clearly. The scramble for Africa was finished, and with the borders now fixed, in the words of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Leopold was free to settle down and exploit the country he now owned. This exploitation started in the Congo River Basin before he had conquered today's eastern provinces. As early as 1891, Leopold issued the Vacant Lands Policy, which meant all lands supposedly not inhabited became the state's property. Later that year, in September, Leopold decreed that his agents should secure all ivory and rubber purchases from the locals 
effectively giving the Congo Free State a monopoly over, lo over rival local traders. With these two laws, he gave himself ownership of all assets in the state and squeezed all local traders out of commerce. The previously thriving merchants, who were normally controlled by the chiefs, would no longer be able to make any money acting as intermediaries between the centre and the external markets, as they had done for centuries. Opportunities for making a living were effectively quashed, no matter the talents of the peoples. It was an impossible situation to entrepreneur your way out of. Without wanting to state the obvious, I would now put it to the listener that Leopold's developmental plans were an utter fabrication. All he really wanted was money, and power, and more money. Initially the engine for the money was ivory. We have seen the demand for this and the reason was profit. In the mid-1880s the cost of a tusk was £2, but it would be sold back in Europe for £9, a margin of nearly 80%, which even at an estimated 70% after transport costs represented a healthy return on any investment made. With the new take from the locals policy, all of these revenues became profit. The demand for this export from Leopold was insatiable. In 1888, as soon as Leopold started to gain a foothold, exports were around 6,000 tonnes per year. By 1892, just four years later, the exports had risen 20-fold to just under 120,000 tonnes. But to run this, Leopold needed people. In 1902, some five years after these policy edicts, there were just over 1,400 Europeans in the entire Congo Free State. They were simply unable to run the collection and distribution of rubber on this scale. So he turned, without asking of course, to the Congo peoples. The very people whom he had just taken the assets and the land away from. Understandably, there was a natural reluctance to support the looting of their own lands. Initially, Leopold turned to imported labour, particularly from Zanzibar and Liberia but they were unable to cater for the increase in output above. And so, 50 years after slavery was officially abolished, local people were press-ganged into portridge, at virtually no pay, as of course monetary transactions with Africans was prohibited. The Lunda, Baluba, Bas-Congo and the people of the other 300 tribes were well and truly trapped. They were forced, by Leopold's greed, into brutal servitude. As mentioned above, one of the labourers they were asked to help with was porterage, but at a brutal level of burden. I paraphrase a Belgian senator who describes his encounters with these porters. Unceasingly we meet these porters, miserable, with only a horribly filthy loincloth for clothing, frizzy and barehead supporting the load, either box, ivory or barrel. Most of them sickly and drooping under a burden increased by tiredness and insufficient food just a handful of rice and some stinking dried fish. They are pitiful walking caryatids, beasts of burden with thin legs and withdrawn features, their eyes fixed from preoccupation with keeping their balance and from the days of exhaustion. They come and go like this by the thousands, requisitioned by the state armed with its powerful militia, handed over by chiefs whose slaves they are and who make off with their salaries trotting with bent knees and belly forward and one arm raised to steady the load, the other leaning on a long walking stick. The task of Sisyphus only stops dying along the road or when the journey is over to die from over-exhaustion in their villages. 
There was no accommodation of welfare for these conscripts, of course. A district commissioner refers to a 600-mile march to set up a new station in which none, I repeat none, of the 300 conscripted men returned. Even children were not able to escape. A Catholic missionary describes the scene of 30 children, under 10 years old, who had been sentenced to 50 lashes by the Chicot, 25 in the evening and 25 in the morning, whose only crime had been to laugh in the presence of a colonial administrator. They waited in line, terrified and paralysed by fear, for their turn to be held down by soldiers to receive their punishment. This was barbaric. These were small children. The Chicot itself deserves special mention. It is a whip made of thick leather from hippopotamus or rhinoceros hide and became the go-to punishment of choice for anyone who seems to be in possession of power over anyone else. It was a ghastly instrument that ripped the skin and flesh causing a great pain to any unfortunate quarry. The consensus by the Belgians was that 25 lashings could lead to unconsciousness and a hundred might lead to death. Absolute cruelty. The same missionary who saw the children punished above, Stanislas Lefranc, was in horror at its application. Here he provides some detail. The station chief selects the victims, trembling, haggard, they lie face down on the ground. Two of their companions sometimes seize them by their feet and hands and remove their cotton drawers. At the first blows, the unhappy victims let out horrible cries which soon become faint groans. Each time that the torturer lifts up that chicot, a reddish stripe appears on the skin of the pitiful victims who, however firmly held, gasp and exhibit frightful contortions. In a refinement of evil, some officers, and I've witnessed this to myself, demand that when the sufferer gets up panting, he must graciously give the military salute. Shocking as this is, what is equally alarming is the Congo Free State Administrator's reactions to Lafranc's horror at such scenes. He was seen as an outlier, not appreciating the need for such events in the development of the people. The authorities' only concession to this man's concerns was to move the punishments away from his house, although, as we shall see much later, he was not isolated in this shock at these incidences. But despite all of this, Leopold's Congo Free State was not making any money. The increase in supply of ivory to the European and American market had dropped the price considerably, and sourcing ivory was costing more and more money. Presumably, as elephants were killed in such numbers, so as to be harder to find. With Leopold's venture losing money, it was looking increasingly likely that the Belgian state would need to take ownership. But there was a new material that the world wanted, just in time for the profit and loss account, but disastrously for the Congolese. Around the world, cities were getting bigger, and as houses and eventually suburbs were built further away from the city centre, people were looking for an affordable way to travel in for work. The bicycle fitted the bill perfectly. Cheaper than a car, more convenient than the train or tram, and requiring less attention and room than a horse, the number of cyclists was increasing exponentially. But every cyclist needed a bike. Every bike needed tyres. And now, for added comfort, every bike needed rubber. Rubber was light, mouldable, hard enough for a vehicle, but soft enough to absorb some of the bumps. It was perfect, as long as you didn't need to find it. In Brazil, rubber trees grew in the central Amazon, 
and the collection of this tree sap made Manao, the city in the middle of the Amazon, one of the richest in the world at the end of the 19th century. Tales of rubber barons, with yachts on the Amazon and personal zoos evidence this, as well as the grandiose opera house and boulevards which were built at this time which are still there. But for the Congolese, the situation was very different. In the Congo River Basin, rubber was not found as sap in trees. It was found in vines, which grew deep in the forests. Trees had been planted, but they would take ten years to mature, so, until then, the vines of the Congo were the only alternative source of rubber in the world. But to collect it, someone had to find a vine, cut an insertion, and collect the milky residue until it solidified. It was hard, physically difficult work, and as the closest vines were already drained, journeys of weeks into the dense forest were necessitated. Of course, the administrators turned to the Congolese. Initially, some of the people were pleased. The rubber was worthless, and if the Belgians wanted to trade this residue for beads and textiles, that seemed a deal worth doing. But as we have seen in the East, soon the realisation of power, whose legitimacy was based solely on having guns, was a temptation that the Congo Free State couldn't resist. Central to the exertion of that power was the force publique, the Congo Free State police and army combined. As described before, this was initially manned by people brought from other colonies, but in 1895 this provision of support was revoked by the British government. The reason for this was twofold. The first was the expense of paying this manpower outside of the British colony, as well as the necessary support of the wives and families back home. And secondly, somewhat downplayed by Belgian historians, was the increasing discontent by the colonial troops and the harsh treatment under the Belgians. In response, the Belgian colonial governors started to look at filling the ranks of the force public recruitment internally. There were three main sources of labour. And let's be clear, by labour we mean people. The primary method was compulsory military service which represented about 25% of total recruitment, with numbers set by the Governor-General. Men and boys were recruited between the ages of 14 and 30, who were officially selected by lottery. The lottery, however, was often skewed towards the recruitment of the families of local chiefs, to increase their influence within the Belgian hierarchy. These did receive pay at 25 cents, which approximated to roughly one-eighth of a Belgian soldier's pay. Secondly, prisoners of war, mainly taken during the wars with the Arabs, could enlist, without pay, in order to earn their release and perhaps learn a trade. And thirdly, redeemed slaves were enlisted as an opportunity to earn their freedom at the price of three metres of copper wire. I'm not sure how the third point reconciles with slavery being illegal at this point, but I think that this points to the ambiguity of the law in the Congo Free State. There was a fourth, less official source. As a precursor to a hundred years later, armed raids seized children who were sent to special military camps of instruction. These were the ancestors of the child soldiers in the Congo Wars at the end of the millennium and into the 21st century. But more on that later. Initially, the force public was slow at ramping up in numbers, with around 1,500 troops in 1889. But by 1898, nine years later, as the rubber exports grew, this number reached just over 19,000 troops. It is interesting to note that the largest foreign contingent of troops was 1,801 in 1894, just before the British stopped agreeing to the use of British colonial troops. 
By the end of the 19th century, the overwhelming body behind the force public were the Congolese people. But leadership of these troops was reserved solely for European officers. The Congo Free State prescribed the following in 1904. Among the other organisational measures passed, it is strictly forbidden to establish outposts under the command of a Congolese officer or assign military operations to him. And it is also forbidden to remove non-commissioned officers from their military chiefs to use them as station chiefs. All of this should ensure that, very soon, the force publique will be a body in which we can have complete confidence. The force publique provided the bulk of the soldiers in the war with the Arabs in the east and the northeast of the country. They were also responsible for providing the support needed for the regime's rubber collection. In 1897, one kilogram of rubber was estimated to cost 1.35 francs per kilo, and it was sold at 10 francs per kilo, a margin of 86%. Full of avarice and uncaring of the Congolese people in the land he had never visited, what Leopold really wanted was more rubber. Despite his outward signs of philanthropy continuing, he did not care how he achieved this, and the force publique was a means to an end. Rubber collection was a long, arduous task. The more accessible vines had already been tapped in the years prior, to fuel the trade for the factories in San Salvador. The only untapped vines that remained were deep in the rainforest, which required at least two days' travel to reach. Once there, an individual had to climb up to 100 feet into the canopy to fully tap into the vine. There were many stories of people who had fallen to their deaths or broken their backs. In addition to this, the only way people could transport the rubber was to let it coagulate on their bodies in the sun, and ripping it off was a painful experience. No one would want to spend four days in the jungle to risk their lives for trinkets. Chillingly, in 1892, a force public officer named Louis Scholtin wrote, The native does not like making rubber. He must be compelled to do it. After trading had stopped, the simplest method of coercion was terror. Here is the testimony of the Reverend Scrivener, an English missionary who was sent to the Congo for three months in 1904. The natives were told to bring rubber, which initially caused a rush as this was worthless to them and could be exchanged for cloth and beads. But soon the reward was reduced to nothing as they were told to bring the rubber for nothing. To this they tried to demur, and to their great surprise several were shot by the soldiers. The rest were told, with many curses and blows, to go at once or many more would be killed. Terrified, they began to prepare their food for the fortnight's foray into the forest. Bang! 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 What? Have you not gone yet? yelled the soldiers. And down went another and another, dead in the midst of their wives and their companions. All must go at once to the forest. After people had been broken, more wicked Iraq were sunk too. A British vice-consul described one officer's method was to arrive in canoes at a village, the inhabitants of which invariably bolted on their arrival. The soldiers were then landed and commenced looting, taking all the chickens, grains, etc. out of the houses. After this they attacked the natives until they were able to seize the women. These women were kept as hostages until the chief of the district brought in the required number of kilograms of rubber. The rubber having been brought, the women were sold back to their owners for a couple of goats apiece, and so he continued from village to village until the requisite amount of rubber had been collected. Sometimes the hostages were women, sometimes children, 
sometimes elders or chiefs. So to add insult to injury, after taking their families hostage and being forced to collect rubber, they had to hand over their livestock as additional ransom. Some officers noted that they were unable to prevent their soldiers from abusing the women. This was just organised thuggery. If people didn't collect enough rubber, or were not quick enough, they were still punished. Here is the journal of the Frenchman, Monsieur Leon Berthier. Belgian post of MS well constructed. The chef de poste is absent. He has gone to punish the village of Mbachi, guilty of being a little late in paying the rubber tax. A canoe full of Congo state soldiers returns from the village of Mbachi. 30 killed, 50 wounded. At three o'clock I arrive at Mbachi, the scene of the bloody punishment of the chef de poste today. Poor village. The debris of miserable huts. One goes away humiliated and saddened from these scenes of desolation, filled with indescribable feelings. It was not just rubber that was extorted, but food as well. Here is the testimony of Mr Murphy, an American missionary, who describes what happened to a village who was one day late in supplying food. The people were quietly sleeping in their beds when they heard a shot fired and ran out to see what was the matter. Finding the soldiers had surrounded the town, their only thought was escape. As they raced out of their homes, men, women and children were ruthlessly shot down. The town was utterly destroyed and is a ruin to this day. The only reason for this fight was that the people had failed to bring quenga or food to the state upon that day. After all of these atrocities, the population reduced in numbers to a catastrophic degree. There are many terrible examples of the horror of seeing the quantities of dead and mutilated corpses. Chillingly, officials were concerned at how efficient the killing was, and severed hands began to be required to account for every spent cartridge bullet. If a shot was missed, an unfortunate soul would be dismembered. The Swedish missionary, Schlobom, writes, I saw dead bodies floating on the lake with the right hand cut off, and the officer told me when I came back why they had been killed. It was for the rubber. When I crossed the stream, I saw dead bodies hanging down from the branches in the water. As I turned away my face at the horrible sight, one of the native corporals who was following us down said, Oh, that is nothing. A few days ago I returned from a fight, and I brought 160 hands. They were thrown into the river. Does the listener remember Balombo, the great centre of ivory and camwood powder trade, with a population of 40,000 people? It now had a population of only 7,000. Do you also remember Arubu, the great Venice of the Congo, with the military men, merchants and lawyers? By 1903, the population of the entire district had fallen to only 50 people. 50 people. Everywhere across the river basin, people had been killed, mutilated, robbed, raped and beaten. After all of this, the population was simply dying. Adam Hothschild has estimated this to be approximately half of the entire population. It is hard to estimate how many people were living here at this time, but consensus has lended to a population of around 20 million. That means 10 million people were killed. And for what? Simply greed and avarice. Leopold II pocketed most of the money, and with his loveless marriage and two estranged children, he spent most of his ill-gotten gains on flamboyant projects in Brussels and Belgium, and a French prostitute who was 55 years younger than him. I am glad that we have spent no time on him. 
If you have the appetite, there are books available, but I'm not prepared to write about him, and I wouldn't propose it for your listening. Next week, we shall look at the reactions of the wider world on all of this, and how Leopold's propaganda machine hid the facts for so long. It is a story of relentless personal courage from ordinary people in the face of establishment greed. For such an atrocity, there is little positive news to emerge, but we will tell the story of the wider world fighting back, aghast at the horror. And it is with this glimmer of hope that we end this time, and the start of season two. As with today, the people of the early 20th century did not stand by, and a global protest movement emerged. So until then, safe travels, and see you next time.